clip you're about to listen to is that of Great Africa Civil Society Organization's engagement with the Pan-African Parliament. Please stay tuned. Masinga, Member Parliament, Kenya. I have my concern and I ask myself questions. Where do we have conflicts in Africa where the West has no interests? Business interest. These wars are not ours. We are fighting the, uh, the wars in ignorances with the interest from outside. So the better we cooperate with the CSOs, the PAP, and even African head of states, there we shall get the answer. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting next to the Minister of Justice from Mali. From our eye contact and physical disposition, there was great need for communication, but we could not because of the language barrier. In fact, at that international forum, I met some of my other African counterparts that I did not have the benefit of meeting here on the continent. I'm raising this example to show that we sometimes superficially refer to regional and continental integration without carefully thinking about the structural barriers that are causing us the kind of disunity that we continue to suffer at a continental level. African populations over many centuries suffered exclusion and marginalization in their own land and continent. Acutely, we have been dispossessed of our identity as a people. We even became the mouthpiece of the global north because of the violence of disposition which was characterized in many ways during a pre-colonial period. In the post-modern and post-colonial times, some would argue the violence has become self-inflicted. There isn't enough time during this short speech to deal adequately with this, but we should think about these issues. Franz Fanon deals with some of it in black skin, white masks. I have a theme which was shared with me, but because of the time constraints under which I prepared this paper, I might not deal with it in a manner envisaged, and I trust the conversation will address the thematic issues. I intend, though, to raise some issues for thought and hopefully for continuing dialogue in further and future exchange. On paper, 
The people have always been in the thoughts of the African governance architecture. I'm just not sure that it always worked out in practice. But the people of this continent have always played and were expected to play a cardinal role as the true sovereigns of state and nation. It started with the establishment and creation of the Organization of African Unity in 1963, now African Union in 2000, in 2000 respectively. A continent at the time, resolute and united in their common goal to decolonize Africa. It was an institution that symbolized African unity. The goal was clearly defined. The methods and approaches clearly set out. And even though as liberation movements, borrowing ideas, sharing resources, and great display of this solidarity, each understood the boundaries of self, identity, and future. Of course, this did not entirely go according to plan. But at a minimum, the decolonization project succeeded, except for what sadly remains with the fight for self-determination by our brothers and sisters of Western Sahara. At the time, as Africans, we were called upon to remain true to our identity and to reclaim it. As far as I can recount, at a policy, legal, and institutional arrangement level, the African Union in its design have always included the role of the people more generally, but more specifically, space was always set up for civil society. It was the implementation and realignment of what this relationship should look like that has been the greatest challenge. It has created the contradiction in dichotomy of the people versus the people paradigm. In fact, it started to sound hollow because civil society organizations within the territory and respective jurisdictions and governments started to be seen as opponents. It is one's hope that platforms such as the one created by this forum and recognition after many years of dialogue will provide scope for a paradigm shift because the constituency that we serve and fight for are the same. Because of our difficult colonial past as a continent, that this relationship will become mutually supportive rather than, than one of them against us. Who is them and who is us? And who are we as civil society, or differently put? Why don't we as governments trust civil society, or vice versa? Admittedly, some CSOs are not entirely innocent when they are accused of driving a foreign agenda, although I don't believe there are any among those doing the work here. It is my hope that with this increased dialogue, we can break the barriers, and we can all be proponents of an open governance system. These tensions are hurting our people. The hopes of pan-African dreams of a united Africa are eroded because we sometimes lack historical poise. What we don't want is a hopeless people, as some may argue is already the case. A people confused about what their historical and cultural identity meant for our liberation. A people unsure whether their identity as Africans is truly inclusive, and if it is not, what can we do differently? Because the Africa we want under Agenda 263 and the Africa we liberated make the promises of freedom, justice, liberty, equality, dignity, and shared prosperity for all. It is an Africa that recognizes that there is unity in diversity. It is the Africa that many of our peoples over many generations of people shed blood, 
lost lives, suffered detention in order for us to live. When His Excellency President of Kenya, Ruto, concedes that we can no longer just be an Africa that needs, that needs problems solved and pitied by others, he's asking us to reaffirm the African Renaissance that former President Thabo Mbeki so eloquently articulated many years ago. But we seem to keep creating new institutions, new policies to address old problems. How many times and on how many platforms must we say that we must find African solutions for African problems? We have the required abilities, intellectual prowess, and the people, the resources required to find our solutions that we need, he, that we need is here with us. What are we lacking? Is it leadership? Is it its inconsistency? Is it lack of urgency? What is it that we lack truly? Because the answers don't lie in the percentage that we calculate and the reports we submit on time so that feedback is recorded on how far we are in terms of our achievement as a continent on the first 10 years of our Agenda 2063 milestones. I want to offer a proposition posited by someone I don't hear about often, but has written a book titled Africa Reimagined, Reclaiming a Sense of Abundance and Prosperity by Fumelo Biko. He postulates in much detail and with a sense of being a son of the African soil that African culture matters. But it requires of the African collective to have a hard look at how far we have come and whether the solutions we offer are truly African solutions for African problems. Or has it been distorted by our colonial context that largely left us with a realization that many of our people are not able to connect their sense of ownership with countries that feel to them are still very much in foreign hands. I want to borrow six pan-African particularities he identified. Collective leadership as a preferred form of accountability, the situational attribution of actions, the centrality of personhood or Ubuntu, a strong belief in servant leadership, a realistic conception of reality, and a focus on relative rather than absolute gains. Because of time limits, I'm not able to expand, but they are fairly self-explanatory. And with the many more platforms of this sort envisaged, I'm sure these principles can become part of conversations. Rhetoric helps us with the inspiring thought and confidence in the activities that we undertake. But understanding concepts such as social contract, social wish, and social consciousness helps with a deeper understanding of the battles we fight as a collective. Because we must ask why we are back at a place where there is still remnants of unconstitutional means of getting to power or raging wars that displace the scores of our people who become internally displaced persons, sometimes in their own countries or in other countries. How is it that 60 plus years into our post-colonial era, we still have high levels of youth unemployment, acute incidents of exclusion from resource access and opportunities on an equal basis, tribalism, discrimination against sexual minorities and marginalized communities. This is why we need to ask ourselves the more difficult and uncomfortable questions. Sometimes 
Asking the difficult and uncomfortable question is often seen as an attack on either someone's personality or leadership style. For instance, in Biko, the biography Tolele Mantu, in the chapter on Steve Biko's extraordinary gift of leadership, the author, the author asks, if Steve Biko was alive, what would things have been like? What African solutions would he have offered? If Captain Hendrik Vipoy or Julius Nyerere was alive, how would they have responded to these issues in what has also now become extraordinary times? Asking these questions must not be seen as those of us in power today are not doing enough. But we must use these rhetorical questions to understand the challenges we face today and to try and find solutions to them. In other words, are we alive and proud or should we rather be dead? End of quote. Our offices and homes are adorned with titles and authors of note. Just as for an example, Sheikh Guevara, a revolutionary life. I write what I like, Steve Biko, Things Fall Apart, Chino Achepe, Africa Reimagined, Sumilo Biko, The Color of Our Future, Kolela Mantu, Franz Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth, Thomas Sankara Speaks, and so the list goes on. Question is, what is the value of all of the knowledge and information we gather, accumulate, if our second continental report still shows very low performance 10 years into our Agenda 2063 performance indicators? And 60 years since we established a continental body at the time, OAU and now AU, to first emancipate us from the grip of imperialism. And it's been, a, it's been 31 years since SADC, 48 since ECOWAS, 56 years since EAC for East Africa. And because of conflict in the Great Lakes then, the Economic Community of Central African Republic started functioning in 1985, even though it was birthed in 1964 and would otherwise have been in place for 59 years. Why is this historical context important? First, because the intent was always to enhance economic and social integration. And second, the people were always and somehow invited to partake in the activities of these supranational bodies. We now have the African Continental Free Trade, free trade Area. See, at this second organization of the People Pan-African Parliament under the rubric of accelerating implementation. And it would be interesting to see if it was not done to have interrogated and to interrogate what went wrong, except for the obvious conflicts that we know. Even today, is a result of strategic interest of people who don't live on the continent and suffer the consequence of their imperial interference. I think we all agree that our biggest challenge is not that we don't know why. We need to do what we need, what we intend to do, for whom we are doing it, and how it must be done. All the various treaties of the various economic communities arranged geographically and politically use the right language, text, intent, and political commitment for these institutional policy and legal arrangements. Typically, it is meant to ensure collective self-sufficiency, economic cooperation in the areas of commerce, energy, agriculture, telecom, natural resources, to name, name a few. The African, free trade the African Continental Free Trade Agreement has just added investment, automotive industry, transport and logistics, ETC. The central intent, I imagine, is always 
the social, cultural, and economic welfare of the people. The wave of leaders is often espoused by President Hagi Kengub of Namibia as, as the first wave being our liberators, and then the second wave which caused us to lose some traction because of dictatorships and conflicts, and the third wave who believes in constitutional democracy. Scholars such as Suneba Mokwena refer to our earlier African liberators actually as the black interpreters. During an interview with Jean-Philippe Rapp in 1985, published as Sankara, a new African power, called us to action then already. He then dared us to invent the future because everything man is capable of imagining he can create, end of quote. In that interview, I too was challenged because he called out what many civil society organizations complain about, that except in isolated instances, we don't as leaders want to hold each other accountable, and many times at the disadvantage of the people. Many of you may have seen the leadership TikTok, where former President Becky, along with other African leaders, inquires into what are the type of leaders we need for the Africa we want. The inauguration of PAP in 2004 was hailed by many as a true sign of integration in Africa and saw the inauguration as a much-anticipated continental parliamentary body for heralding the end of non-participation of Africans in the continental decision-making processes. We all know what the key objectives are that are set out, many of them responding to the challenges that we face today as Africans. Hopefully, with this afternoon's engagement with civil society, my hope is it will be honest and meaningful. Importantly, the Pan-African Parliament has the power to make recommendations to the African Union and its member states on a wide range of issues related to the objectives listed above. We therefore hope that as many have been saying, that the quality of engagements with civil society will see an increase in trust in the system and not see this just a talk shop as it is the case and perception now. The collaboration of the Pan-African Parliament and civil society confined to workshops and conferences, most, most of which must benefit the members of Parliament, of the, of the African Parliament. The workshops are usually preceded by presentations to the relevant committees for purpose of sharing with them the activities of a particular NGO. Most NGOs approach the Pan-African Parliament to indicate how they can assist and it is only then that they participate in the relevant committee sittings. We hope that now with the change in this relationship, the rich history of organizing parallel events and engaging Pan-African continental leadership in a meaningful manner of civil society will come to fruition. They are often well prepared in terms of the issues they want to address through policy position papers, fact sheets, reports, scholarship through the publication of articles and books. These methods and availability to train and arrange visits for members, in this instance, the, the Pan-African members, it would seem though, despite these efforts and the avenue available, access to, in, to these institutions is sometimes problematic. The pace and scope of change we need to see urgently. The second continental report on the implementation 
pace of the first 10 years of Agenda 2063 is quite telling, given that we have a long history as a continent of economic, regional and social integration. It will be important to interrogate why the remaining countries were not able to submit their reports. Again, it shows that we as Africans name ourselves in languages that is, in my view, divisive, anglophone, francophone, and lusophone. This clearly influences our identity and affects the affinity among our nations. We therefore need more philosophical discussions on how to deconstruct these identity challenges so we become one in all respects. My own sense of why these engagements are ineffective is because we often forget to build relationships with functionaries at national level. This could in part be because of the party political dynamics at national level. The other is that we often find ourselves preferring engagements out of country because there are not enough opportunities and platforms available at the national level. This is obviously not true for all countries. Although the legislative platform and judiciary platforms are probably the most accessible because of their unique positionality as independent state organs. The decommodization, democratization landscape in Africa is complex and varied, with some countries making significant progress towards democratic governance, while others continue to struggle with authoritarianism, corruption, and political instability. This platform, the civil society, with their rich knowledge and skills, creates a chance to enhance this working relationship. While there is no one-size-fits-all solution, as I conclude, to promoting democratic governance in Africa, efforts to strengthen institutions, promote civil society and media freedom, and empower youth and women are critical to building more inclusive and democratic societies on the continent. But the Africa we want is clearly defined. All it needs now is the people of the continent to own it. The people of the continent to internalize it, the people of the continent to live it, and be allowed to assess it against their lived realities, not based on desk assessment that may not always resonate with the lived experiences of our people. We all serve the same constituency. Let's do it so in a let's do so in a transparent, honest and accountable fashion for the benefit of all our people on the continent and in the diaspora. I thank you.
thanks and appreciation for listening to the Dr. Beth's podcast. Bye-bye,